You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 27th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, we look ahead to the second day of the European Council Summit after its president calls for unity as the bloc works to find a united response to the Israel-Hamas conflict. Also ahead, China's top diplomat makes a rare visit to the US at a time of deep strategic differences. And we hear from the Israeli centre working to release the hostages held by Hamas. Maybe more than the information that we get from their families, it's the tone of their voice that is so petrifying because they're mostly very calm and you hear the exhaustion and the desperation. Plus the transport news from Tokyo and... We learned that in a live-action paraphrasing by the US Republican Party of the most famous aphorism of Andy Warhol, everyone will be Speaker of the House for 15 minutes. That's Andrew Muller filling in the news gaps in what we learned. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The former Premier of China, Li Keqiang, has died. He was 68. Li was once tipped to be the country's future leader, but was overtaken by President Xi Jinping. American fighter jets have carried out airstrikes targeting two weapons facilities linked to Iran-backed militias in eastern Syria and a delegation from Hamas has visited Moscow for talks on the release of foreign hostages. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories but Europe's leaders start a second day of talks in Brussels today as part of the EU Council Summit. Yesterday evening the bloc agreed on the wording of a statement on the Israel-Hamas war but already it's being seen as a fudge. Well, I'm joined now by Suzanne Lynch, who's Chief Brussels Correspondent for Politico, who's been following the events. A very good morning to you, Suzanne. Good morning. So just tell us what's in this statement and how long it took them to get there. Yes, so there had been a lot of controversy about the wording, the precise terms used in this statement, or just in fact these few paragraphs that are part of a broader communique that will eventually be signed off at this evening at the end of the, the two-day summit. Um, but they did agree language on the Middle East last night, and this came after five hours of talk. And uh, it called for pauses for humanitarian needs to allow aid into Gaza um, and it also uh, calls for a, a peace day effort, a, a, the holding of an international peace conference. But what's significant there is that there was a um, a divide among member states. Some member states wanted to cause for call for a pause, singular, uh, and others wanted the word pauses because it it was felt that if you say a call for a humanitarian pause, that is quite close to a ceasefire, something that Israel. Uh, and some of its supporters in Europe, not least Germany and Austria, do not want at this point. They don't think uh, they should be calling for a ceasefire, whereas the phrase humanitarian pauses opens the idea that uh, you could um, temporarily pause activities to allow aid in, etc. So this is the kind of uh, level of discussion that was happening last night. And this is an indication of really how sensitive this issue is uh, for so many countries and how how divided really the EU is on this issue. Just explain to us the, the tone and the feeling there. One official apparently reported that um, the discussion lasting five hours said it was one of the best debates they've ever had. There was no fight. The discussion was very rich. Everybody took to the floor at least more, at least once, if not more. It sounds as if there is a, a sort of a positive approach to this, despite the differences. How, how accurate a, a reflection is that? I think with that, it, it reflects the fact that the fact that every single leader, the 27 leaders, took to the floor, that doesn't happen all the time because sometimes in an EU summit, you're, you're discussing something that only some countries really feel strongly about. This is a country, this is a subject that everyone wants to speak on. It's, it shows the gravity of the issue. Um, we were hearing reports that everybody made the point about the, the shock over the Hamas attacks. And then you had the debate that look about the humanitarian access and the uh, conflict more generally about the two-state solution that's needed and the plight of the Palestinian people. So the very fact that everyone took to the floor and discussed this, I think it is a, an indication 
um, of the gravity of the situation and that the EU felt it needed to get this right. There's been lots of mixed messages of contradictory statements coming from Brussels over the last few weeks, going right to the top of the EU leadership where we saw a division between Ursula von der Leyen on one, st- one side and Charles Michel, a European Council, Council president on the other, taking slightly different views. This was an effort to try and unite around some kind of language and some kind of um, stance on the crisis. You spoke about Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel having disagreements, but where do the deeper fault lines lie in terms of countries? Mm. Uh, I think uh, this has always been a, con- you know, a contradictory and a controversial issue for the EU. And I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why Ursula von der Leyen's trip to Israel, that she didn't kind of uh, see that this was going to be controversial, um, because it actually always has been for the, for the European Union. Um, and on the one side, you've got countries, particularly Spain, Ireland, um, Belgium, some of the Nordic countries who take a, a generally a more pro-Palestinian stance generally. Um, and on the other, you have a lot of countries, Germany, Austria, the Czech Republic, Hungary, who are extremely pro-Israel. Um, and I think that's always been the case. And those divisions have become even more apparent in in the last few weeks as this war has begun. Um, so that's the kind of range of views. I mean, for Germany, for historic reasons, uh, there is now an instinctive, you know, pro-Israeli stance. Obviously, um, after the Holocaust and the whole the whole German foreign policy, um, Angela Merkel talked about this about a decade ago. It has got Israel as a part of that. Um, so I think uh, Germany and Austria are coming from it from a very different perspective than some other countries. Uh, so I think these divisions are going to continue as this war goes on. We don't know what the next stage is, uh, but it's going to be a very delicate issue for the EU to speak in one voice on this topic. And it is something that they're going to have to talk about at speed because this uh, the, the the attacks on 7th the 7th of October when Hamas um sent its its militants into Israel took everybody by surprise and the EU is doesn't have a reputation for being a very nimble body given its size and the the sensitivities and complexities within. And the EU is not a huge foreign policy player. I mean, one of the one, what struck us last night there at the summit was the fact that you know is Israel even noticing that this EU so much is, is is happening? No, probably not. I mean, it's not going to impact whether or not you know Israel continues into Gaza, for example. But at the end of the day, what the EU says matters, and it it sets out a kind of an international stance. It, it's kind of comparable to what's happening at the at the UN in a sense where there's also divisions there, but trying to speak in one, in one voice about this. Um, it's also a very important uh, player in terms of aid. It's the biggest donor of, of Palestinian aid. So it really does matter there. And of course, some EU leaders have been visiting Israel. That's one of the topics they discussed, those leaders last night. They heard from leaders who had visited um, the region in recent days, including Emmanuel Macron of France, and um, the Austrian Chancellor. Uh, so look, bilaterally, a lot of these countries give aid are very invested in in this area. But yes, the EU is limited in what it can do, but what it says uh, does matter internationally, particularly as discussions continue about how to try and stave off further escalation and what happens ultimately uh, in terms of any kind of uh, ceasefires or peace talks. What are the likelihoods of other countries, of countries within the European Union, peeling away and having their individual voice on this one? I mean, we we saw it at, we saw it at, at the beginning with uh, some rogue voices from Hungary coming through. But is there a sense that there is that, that the European Union has to act as one and be seen and heard as one? Mm. I think there has been. I mean, Hungary, as you said, has come out. Um, Ireland, in particular. Uh, has has is traditionally very pro uh, takes a pro Palestinian stance around the EU table, and we've had a situation now. The Irish President Michael D Higgins has has publicly criticised Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission President. I mean, the, the, that never happened. She was extremely popular in Ireland, um, so you're already seeing uh, public criticism of the EU from within the EU, uh, and that is not a place the EU wants to be at the moment. Uh, there also is the this the connected theme, which hasn't didn't really surface. We hear that much last night at the summit, but may do today. Which is, um, we're only a week on from the attacks in Brussels. Two Swedish nationals were killed, and your know, connections between perhaps terrorism. Um, Hungary was trying to push that that line about migration, 
And I think there was a broader feeling, uh, even among countries maybe like Germany, that you know, if this uh, if this conflict was to escalate in a serious way, could we have a kind of a migration impact in Europe? Probably. And so that's another aspect of, of this discussion that, again, may surface further down the line. And as we know, that's a very, very emotive and decisive issue for the EU. Suzanne Lynch, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent. Many thanks for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. if you're listening in Beijing, 7.11am here in London. Now, the former Premier of China, Li Keqiang, has died. He was 68 and had suffered a heart attack. Li was once seen as a future leader of China, only for his star to be eclipsed by that of President Xi Jinping. Well, that news coincides with the announcement that the visit by China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi to Washington is expected to pave the way for an eventual summit between President Xi Jinping and Joe Biden next month. So what groundwork can be laid towards any kind of consensus. So joining me in the studio is David Schlesinger, an independent advisor and commentator on media journalism and China. Very good morning to you, David. Good morning. So we we have two things to cover here. So first of all, let us um, assess the legacy of Li Keqiang. Um, He dies at a comparatively young age of of 68. Um, And the, the reaction in China has been what? There's been sort of quite a lot of muted um, but but heartfelt responses to his death. Well, I think any time a leader dies, you get the ritualistic responses. So uh, Xinhua comes out with a, a short statement, then there's the obituary and the fulsome praise for him as a, uh, a leader of the Communist Party of the nation. And he was, but I think we can't ignore the fact that he was a leader of a faction that wa- that originally had been opposed to Xi Jinping. He was seen at one time as a possible uh, top leader of China, but I. Uh, she totally eclipsed him. So uh, she originally brought him on as premier as a consolation prize. Sorry, I won. You lost. Your faction lost. Proceeded to totally decimate his faction within the Communist Party and didn't give uh, Li Keqiang a lot of airtime. Li was a technocratic uh, premier. He kept the economy ticking over, but he really did not have much of a personality that he showed. I mean, I, I actually sat uh, next to him at a, a dinner once in Beijing one, around one of these round tables. He did not say a single word to me, not a single word. He stayed straight at... Now, that may, that may just be my personality, that he, uh, <laughs> but I would rather think that it was his personality that he did not dare to engage with a foreign visitor who was a journalist. Did he talk to anybody else or was it no, ju- he didn't, he just didn't talk, you? No, he didn't talk to anybody. Oh, but, right, okay. Don't uh, take it personally. I did take it a bit personally, but it, I, think, I think that was Lee. He was there for form. He was the uh, he he was supposed to be there. He was there, but he didn't really want to be there, and he didn't want to take any risks. Tell us a little bit about the, the assessment that you know, as an economist in a party full of engineers, he was slightly different. And people are saying this morning that he was more of a moderate voice. I mean, I don't know how moderate you can be within the higher echelons of the of the Chinese economy, Communist Party. I mean, it's it's easy to call him a moderate in comparison to Xi Jinping, who, uh, but I mean. Let's let's be frank. We're always wrong about Chinese leaders. I mean, when she came in, people, Chinese uh, analysts said to me, oh, yeah, first he'll go a little bit left and then he'll go right because his heart is really with reform. Well, that was nonsense. That was wishful thinking. And I think uh, what we really should be honest about is that within the Communist Party, it's about power. It's about factional power. It's about ideological power. And when we on the outside try to analyze in terms of reformer, liberal, conservative, these are just markers that are played for pragmatic games. There was one comment, though, that he was a man who, uh, contra to what you suggest happened to you at your dinner party, was a man who, who told it like it was, that he was a man who would acknowledge 
China's problems as a means of finding solutions, not something that Xi Jinping would find an acceptable way of communicating. I think if you look at it in terms of power politics within China, if you're the premier and you are the head of a faction that has been sidelined to say there are problems that we have to deal with, in a way, is talking your own book as well. Uh, you know, if only I had been in charge, maybe things would be different, but we do have things we have to deal with. Uh, let's move on to uh, the news at the moment. The China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, is in Washington. Um, it, this is the purpose of what? He's, he's, he's meeting um, Tony Blink, Anthony Blinken, um, but he's also sort of paving the way for a meeting that could happen in in San Francisco next month between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. Right. So clearly, if you take the, the glass half full view, China and the US are talking again. Uh, they're meeting again. They're meeting at a high level. Uh, Biden and Xi Jinping may meet on the uh, the outskirts of the APEC forum uh, in, in San Francisco. This is all good news to be talking. But then when you look at the glass half full side, there are a lot of problems in the relationship. I just I, yesterday, the U.S. released footage of a, a Chinese jet, uh, Air Force jet, nearly clipping a U.S. Air Force plane. They were 10 feet apart in the South China Sea. 10 feet. That's three meters. That's not a lot of distance if you're traveling at very, very high speed. China responded, said, well, yes, but here's our clip, our video clip of a U.S. Navy ship nearly hitting our Navy ship in the South China Sea. And by the way, what are you doing in our backyard at all? So that's one thing. Then you have uh, China blocking a Philippines uh, Navy ship in the South China Sea, in the Spratly Islands. Uh, And Biden immediately says, well, we have a uh, defense pact with the Philippines. We will defend the Philippines if China attacks. And then, of course, you have the regular problems of human rights, chips, trade, intellectual property rights. So, sure, Wang Yi is there, Biden and Xi may meet, but this is not a sudden love fest, especially in the run-up to the U.S. elections next year, where uh, being tough on China is uh, seen as a kind of manliness game in the U.S. at the moment. And what dynamic will the Middle East conflict be adding to, to this relationship between the U.S. and China? Well, that's a very interesting question. Wang Yi, uh, by profession, was a Japan specialist. Uh, he was the uh, the ambassador to to Japan. But as foreign, in his first term as foreign minister, he put a lot of attention on the Middle East, and China really would like to be seen as a player in the Middle East. The problem is China doesn't really have a lot of cards to play, and it seems to have gotten itself uh, maneuvered into a position where it has to take a a somewhat more pro-Palestinian stand, A, for historical reasons, because China has always been a friend of the oppressed and downtrodden. I mean, when I was in Beijing, Yasser Arafat was a a frequent visitor, Uh, even though China then did recognize Israel in the 90s, and it has a, a pretty good trade relationship there. But also because China's foreign policy mavens seem to see Israel merely as a U.S. client state. And so they can't uh, be too much on Israel's side because they really want to try to squeeze the U.S. out of the the Middle East. Interesting games. Uh, I would say if I were Blinken, I would concentrate on the Iran question uh, because clearly there's the Iran-Hamas linkage and China and Iran are, if not friends, they're major players together. Uh, China is Iran's uh, number one trade partner. There are good relations. Maybe there's uh, some kind of role China could play behind the scenes there. David Schlesinger, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Still to come on today's programme, Andrew Muller shares his outlandish take on what the last seven days have taught us. We learned that in a live-action paraphrasing by the US Republican Party of the most famous aphorism of Andy Warhol, everyone will be Speaker of the House for 15 minutes. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. 
We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's continue now with a look at today's newspapers. Joining me on the line from Auckland in New Zealand is reporter Natalia Sutherland. A very good morning or good afternoon or good evening, I should say to you, Natalia. Good evening and good morning to you, Emma. Uh, nice, to, nice to have you all the line, all the way down from uh, Auckland. Just to, let's talk about what's happening in the papers here. Um, we have a meeting with uh, Anthony Albanese, and um, well, he's he's in Washington, isn't he? Yes. So, Prime Minister, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has been in the US for a summit with talks with President Joe Biden. Uh, they've been talking about climate change, cybersecurity, the conflict between Hamas and Israel, uh, among other issues such as the regional uh, Pacific regional stability. But he was also there to urge US Congress to pass legislation related to the AUKUS project. Now, AUKUS project is a pact between the US, UK and Australia, which would see the US and UK supply Australia with a fleet of submarines powered by US nuclear technology. So there's a lot riding on getting this project underway from the Australian point of view and getting it underway before the US election next year, which could potentially see Donald Trump re-elected and a more isolationist government in place in the US and see AUKUS deal, or could see the AUKUS deal thrown out. So there's a lot riding on this trip for Anthony Albanese. Uh, The passing of the legislation so far has been halted by internal issues in the US, such as the US budget woes, and also the ousting of Congress Speaker. So Anthony Albanese took the time this week in the last 24 hours to meet with the new Congress Speaker, Mike Johnson, to urge him to pass the legislation, again reiterating that this pact would aid in the defence against any potential conflict with China. So he's had his diplomatic hat on this week, trying to convince Republicans to get on board. He's already got Joe Biden on board for this pact. But Republicans are the key players here because they will pass this legislation. Uh, They haven't been on board to date. They aren't anti-AUKUS, but they're also not quite for AUKUS. They claim it could potentially weaken their own fleet at home and are a bit cautious about giving some of that fleet to the Australians. What's also kind of interesting about this trip too is that it's happening a week before Anthony Albanese is due in China. And that will be the first time a Prime Minister from Australia has been to China in seven years. And that was due to the uh, rather cold relationship that Australia and China have had over the last seven years with the last Australian Conservative government. And then that subsequently put extreme tariffs on Australian trade. So an interesting uh, two weeks for the Australian Prime Minister as he juggles two very tense relationships. Tell us a little bit more about the the tone that Albanese is trying to set, because when you are a world leader and you are going on a world tour to see the likes of the Chinese and and the Americans, it is important that you pitch yourself high. But there was a State Department lunch, wasn't there, that was um, hosted by Kamala Harris and and Secretary of State Antony Blinken. And and Albanese said, Australians are not looking for a free ride with the AUKUS deal. He says, we are a middle power and we're a leader in our own own region and Australia. Australians always pay our way. It doesn't really strike as a sort of a a positive and dynamic approach to take. This almost feels as if they're on the back foot. They are a little bit on the back foot. I think that uh, comment from him is trying to win that Republican side over. I think with uh, Joe Biden, he is more than happy to have China hemmed in. He's courting Japan. He's courting South uh, South Korea. Um, the foreign secretary has been out to uh, New Zealand to also discuss issues with China. It's that Republican element that is, is Australia pay the, paying their way? What do we get out of this? Whereas Australia is trying to say, well, we're, we were 
provide infrastructure, we will build ports for you, we will train our own uh, military on these submarines, and in uh, for that, you will get more security in the region if China did make moves uh, in that particular situation. Let's move on to uh, another story that you've spotted, which is a which is Cyclone Lola. Tell tell us about the power of this cyclone and why it's so remarkable. This is a really quite remarkable cyclone because it's the earliest a cyclone at this scale has been recorded in the southern hemisphere. To just give you an example of how powerful Cyclone Lola was, it was a Category Five storm, uh, which. Uh, recorded winds at nearly 300 kilometres per hour. So uh, although uh, cyclone season begins in November and it runs through to April, uh, these storms don't become this large this early on. Whether that's due to climate change, scientists are still debating it, or whether it was just a cocktail of conditions in the Pacific. Uh, But still, this cyclone made a massive impact on Vanuatu. We're only initially hearing reports out of the islands because communication has been cut off. Now, because it was so large before it hit Vanuatu, a day probably about 18 hours before it even hit land, all communication was cut off to the islands, which just gives you an example of how big the storm was. Tell us a little bit more about another major um, weather event, which is the Australian bushfires. There are there are warnings that this season, as you're heading into summer, could be worse than ever. Yeah, there are warnings to Australians that this could be worse than Black Summer. Now, we all remember that Black Summer from 2019 and 2020, which was devastating. Over 30 people lost their lives and hundreds of people lost their homes. And this warning comes because of the early stages of the bushfire season and how large these fires are. Just in uh, New South Wales alone, 150 bushfires are currently burning. 60 are in uh, Queensland. 32 homes so far have been destroyed and two people have already died in the Queensland fires. Hundreds of people have already been evacuated and thousands of firefighters are working in both states to battle those blazes. Um, Just to make the job a little bit more difficult, uh, over the last 24 hours, Queensland has experienced unusually high winds, which has been fueling the blaze, and also temperatures registering 10 degrees above average. And that creates unusual weather events too in these bushfires. So you'll see reports of dry lightning, which is causing more fires, and also fire tornadoes, which makes it dangerous for firefighters to battle the current blazes that are are ongoing. Natalia Southern, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Auckland. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson, live on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is just nudging 7.28am. Time then for a quick look at the headlines. American fighter jets have carried out airstrikes targeting two weapons facilities linked to Iran-backed militias in eastern Syria. The US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the strikes were narrowly tailored in self-defense in response to a series of attacks against American troops in Iraq and Syria. A delegation from Hamas has visited Moscow for talks on the release of foreign hostages. Those being held include Russian citizens. Russia has ties to all key players in the Middle East, including Israel, Iran, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. And Hurricane Otis has claimed the lives of at least 27 people. That's according to Mexico's government. One of the most powerful storms in history hit the country, hammering the beach resort of Acapulco, causing damage seen running into billions of dollars. And those are the headlines. Now, pressure is mounting to secure the release of hundreds of Israeli hostages who were taken by Hamas militants during the brutal terror attack on October the 7th. Teams of volunteers, including former diplomats and family members, have taken matters into their own hands. They've been working around the clock to bring hostages back home from Gaza. The journalist Marisa Mazria Katz filed this report from Tel Aviv's Hostage Circle headquarters. <laughs> That's the sound of families and volunteers inside Tel Aviv's Hostage Circle headquarters. Writer and literary critic Shlomsion Kenan is one of the hundreds of volunteers working at the hub, which is open day and night for families of the hostages. 
she takes us around. There are so many teams uh, working at the same time, day and night, uh, to get the information up and uh, on social media and around the world, we're supposed to bring these hostages home. She answered the center's call for translators and journalists that went out within hours of the crisis. Every day that passes, uh, there is less likelihood for them to come back. And so now, in between time spent in bomb shelters and home, she's working in one of the many floors the center has taken over in a Tel Aviv high-rise. The center was set up by a group of notable media consultants and lawyers. And among the volunteers recruited are some of the country's better-known names in film, journalism, mental health, and diplomacy, like Daniel Sheik, an Israeli diplomat and former ambassador to France, who Shlomzion ran into during her shift. She asked him why he was there. I was, uh, you know, like many people, I just fell into uh, this place and was sucked into it. And now I'm here uh, every day from morning till late night. I manage a little group of uh, former Israeli diplomats. It's the diplomatic team of this uh, big initiative, and we try to respond to any need that arises here that has international implications. Uh, We are a a group of uh, former diplomats who have many connections in many countries in the world, and uh, we've been quite busy. Back at home, Shlomzion tells me the center has been cautious about directing frustrations at the government, despite media reports that an overwhelming number of Israelis blame the crisis on the current leadership. They just want their babies back. Um, They don't want to be engaged in any kind of criticism against the government. But there's more. As the days drag on, the voices from the families she meets reflect an increasingly dire reality. Maybe more than the information that we get from their families, it's the tone of their voice that is so petrifying because they're mostly very calm and very precise and they answer questions and you hear the exhaustion and the desperation and yet they have to go on. For Monocle, this is Marissa Masria-Katz. We're listening to that was Alison Kaplan-Sommer, a journalist for Haaretz based in Tel Aviv, a regular voice here on Monocle Radio. Very good morning to you, Alison. Good morning. So this is clearly a softer approach in terms of trying to negotiate or try to just somehow get the, secure the release of these 200 hostages. Well, I don't know if you call it a softer approach. Um, I think from the beginning, Israel has been, you know, open and willing to uh, any kind of approach, any kind of chance to uh, to release its citizens. And um, I don't think that the fact that uh, there's a huge, huge um, uh, rising up of the Israeli public, you know, demanding that these hostages be returned, changes any of the reality of Israel recognizing that it needs to completely uproot the Hamas uh, military infrastructure living next door. So I don't think one necessarily means another. I don't think the fact that there is this push for hostage release means that an approach is softer. How helpful an approach is it, though, when we when we also have the Israeli military saying that there will only be a, a, a ceasefire that when these all of these hostages are released? Right. Well, that's a non-starter because Israel is not going to agree to any kind of a ceasefire until the hostages are released. I believe that the great delay in a full-scale ground uh, incursion into Gaza is heavily tied to the issue of whether or not that there is kind of room to uh, negotiate more uh, hostages being released before the incursion. But if you see the news in the last 24 hours, there's not a full-scale ground operation, but there have now been three operations by Israeli ground forces into Gaza. So uh, Israel is not backing off militarily at the same time it's doing everything it can to uh, to gain the release of its hostages. Um, in relation to the lack of faith of the uh, Israeli public and its leadership, I think that your report about this hostage center, about the former diplomats coming in, about the huge amount of public activity d- comes from the sense, comes from the uh, the discomfort and the, uh, the worry that the government is not uh, pushing hard enough. And so therefore, there has to be a big civilian volunteer push as well, which is what we're seeing. How much is there a sense of acceptance in Israel that not all of the hostages are going to come back? We are hearing reports that... Um some are claiming that at least 50 hostages have have died. Um, Is Israel accepting of this? 
that, well, that's according to Hamas, and I don't think Israel's going to be accepting of any information until, you know, it's confirmed. Uh, Israel's constantly being accused of violating international law. You hostages, prisoners, anything is supposed to have some sort of confirmation of information, some sort of visit of medical professionals, some sort of... Uh, of international um, uh, monitoring of the situation, and uh, and there's none of that right now. Tell us a little bit more about, if you can, about the role of of the Qataris. Um, the leading negotiators in in Qatar are saying that the civilians being held hostage in Gaza can be released in days if there is a pause in the fighting. And bearing in mind that Qatar holds the political office of, of Hamas. But at the same time, it the Qataris have managed to secure the release of what, up to four now? I don't know if you would say that the four that were released were completely because of the intervention of the Qataris. I, the, the first two, I believe, the American citizens were, were heavily uh, Qatar negotiated. Qatar holds a lot of sway over Hamas. They're basically uh, dependent. Hamas is dependent on the Qataris for, for funding. So therefore, Qatar, even though they're no friends of, uh, of Israel, um, are, are huge in, uh, in, in influencing this. Remember, though, you know, these hostages, we're referring to them as Israeli hostages, Israeli hostages. A tremendous percentage of them have dual citizenship. Citizenships. 54 of the hostages are Thai nationals from, you know, Thailand. So that's why this is a this is a huge international issue. This isn't a solely Israeli um, uh, hostage uh, situation and hostage issue, which is why there is such heavy, I think, um, uh, leaning on the world to uh, to intervene and to uh, to release these hostages, at least the civilian ones and at least the ones who are uh, citizens of, uh, of their other countries that are that are working on their behalf. And indeed, we've had um, Hamas travel to Moscow. Moscow because there are Russian nationals who, who are being held there. This has not gone down well with the with the Israelis, has it? You know, uh, the Russians and Hamas have a lot in common in that they don't seem to care a lot about civilian casualties. So maybe Russia can be more effective than uh, than more humanitarian and democratic countries in uh, in figuring out what buttons to press in uh, in Hamas to get them to release some of these hostages. Um, before the Ukraine war, uh, Israel had a quite um, a harmonious, I would say, cooperative um, uh, relationship with Vladimir Putin. If you remember, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu during his election campaign had huge posters of himself shaking hands with Putin, showing uh, um, what a good diplomat he was. So um, I think, you know, again, it's the, it's the result that matters. It's not the means. And I think that if Israel feels that it's going to result in getting hostages uh, released, they honestly don't care who's involved. Alison Kaplan-Sommer on the line from Tel Aviv. Thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. in Tokyo, 8.37am in Zurich, 7.37 here in London. Now, Tokyo's auto show is back for the first time in four years, newly rebranded for the electric vehicle era. Japanese car makers such as Toyota and Honda are keen to show they're forging ahead with the changeover to EVs. Uh, Monocle, uh, sorry, Fiona Wilson is Monocle's uh, Tokyo bureau chief. She joins me now from the Japanese capital. A very good afternoon to you, Fiona. Hi, Emma. So just you wore out the shoe leather yesterday um, at the, the, the auto show. Just describe it for us mere mortals who didn't get a chance to go inside. Well, it's it's absolutely huge. I mean, as you say, it hasn't uh, there hasn't been a motor show since 2019. It's held at Tokyo Big Site, massive conference hall um, on the waterfront in Tokyo. There are 475 companies this year. They're expecting a million visitors once it opens to the public tomorrow. So basically, you've got all the big Japanese makers, and they they were bringing out concept after concept. Toyota. Honda, Mitsubishi, Nissan, Suzuki, they were all there. And I have to say that if um, if you're a serious petrol head, you might be disappointed because really the, the emphasis this year, as you were saying, it's about concept, it's about alternative power sources, quite a lot about electric vehicles. So it, it was a very different atmosphere. And that's why it's been renamed the Mobility Show. You know, it's not just about cars. We're looking at there were wheelchairs trucks, you know, mobile coffee vans. It's a whole different uh, approach to uh, to what the, the motor show traditionally meant. Indeed, I'm, cu- I'm keen for you to tell me about the self-driving taxi in a moment, but, but tell us about the shift to electric vehicles. Is there a sense that Japan is across this? Because obviously there is a race to make sure that the roads of the world are populated by, well, it depends on whose side you're on, the Japanese, the Americans or the Europeans. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think generally the view is that Japan's been a bit uh, of, of a laggard on this issue and Toyota particularly, you know, massive car company. And they really have put all their energies uh, in recent years into hybrid cars. They didn't back electric vehicles. But at this show, they've shown, you know, there's there's the electric Lexus. They showed a brand new um, electric Land Cruiser, which was really the thing I think was it was getting most attention actually on the Toyota stand. People were fascinated by this all electric vehicle. I think what they're showing is they can do it if they want to. I talked to one of the Toyota designers and he was saying, look, we can do it. But we've often felt that electric vehicles are very expensive. It's this high-end Tesla market. And Toyota, for example, is a massively global company. We're in emerging economies. We're not just looking at this top-end market. So for them, there's been an issue about, you know, who's your market going to be? But they realise that, you know, electric vehicles, it, it, it's the uh, the direction of travel, as it were. And indeed, um, yes, point noted. Um, and indeed, I mean, we, we now have the Chinese coming to the Tokyo Auto Show as well. Um, there were... Um, is it Yang Wang that was coming along? I mean, China really wants to eat everybody else's lunch, doesn't it, when it comes to electric vehicles? Yeah, I mean, and that was very noticeable because there aren't very many uh, overseas car companies. You know, BMW is there, for example, but BYD, the big Chinese uh, car company, they've come to Japan this year. They had a huge stand. It's all electric vehicles. What they, they weren't showing any concepts, interestingly. There was something rather old-fashioned about their stand, you know, they had girls standing by the cars, which seemed very <laughs> a retro touch um, that no one else was bothering with. But um, I think you felt that what they were doing is showing what they, that these are the cars that are available and they're showing just what they've got. It's a big, big lineup. And, you know, they're, they're bringing that market to Japan. They're challenging Japan. And I think, you know, the feeling is that uh, Japanese car companies really need to, uh, to decide which direction they're going. And I think the feeling is that, yeah, electric, uh, they can't run away from electric. How about the way these things look? Because I mentioned a moment ago the, the self-driving taxi and, and also the images that are coming out from uh, Nissan's uh, battery-powered minivan. It seems as if people have taken the not only the design of the interior of a, of a motor vehicle, but the exterior as well, and have, have thrown it out of the window. And, and what is currently replacing it is, in some occasions, a little bit nuts. <laughs> I had that feeling as well. I mean, some of these self-driving vehicles, because that's another aspect of this this show, a lot about, you know, self-driving vehicles, smart vehicles. Yeah, they don't seem to have a front or a back. You're not sure which way they're going. Uh, there, there's no obvious sort of, uh, it just doesn't look like a normal car. The interiors are very different. The seats are much lighter. The car doors are often opening sort of like a, a sliding window from the middle to the side. So it's a very different feeling. I mean, some of them honestly look like they've dropped from outer space. They're pure concept. I mean, Subaru was showing a flying car, which obviously is not possible yet. But they were saying it could be. Let's think big. And I think that was what was quite exciting for someone like me was just the ideas were coming thick and fast. I mean, it was there were so many different vehicles I loved. Honda had an, a massive range of mobility vehicles. I had to go on a I don't really know what to describe it. It was a sort of moving stool. You sat on it. You just had to lean forward slightly and it moved forward. You slightly lean to the right. It turns to the right. It, it was an incredible experience. And, you know, people were very cautious about getting on these things. But you get the hang of it in no time. And I think that's what they were showing. It's, it's ideas. This is it's not just about driving. It's about what's mobility, you know, in a country where you've got an aging population. What will it mean for people who don't have cars? Um, and Toyota showed this, I thought, one of the highlights was this incredible steering wheel that the Toyota designers have designed. It was done with a Paralympic athlete and they've shown, you know, a steering wheel can actually control everything. So, you know, the accelerator and the brake are on this this steering wheel that to me looked like a games console. And and it, they said you can put this into, you know, any number of vehicles. So it's it's not pie in the sky. That one, that is, a you know, something they could be doing right now. So I found it very uh, inspiring. Uh, briefly, Fiona, we're running out of time, but let's just return to this stool. What's it for? I mean, are we seeing this like running down the motorway so we can sort of, is it like a bar stool? Just explain to us why anyone would think of coming up with a fast moving stool for roads. <laughs> The very idea of it going down a motorway is quite, you know, hair raising. It's not that fast. I th the idea is that you could move around in, in, in interior spaces, mostly, I would imagine. Um, it, it's 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 not a wheelchair. It's for maybe people who have, you know, the, the limited mobility, but you still want to get around. Um, it's not fast. 
You're not wearing a crash helmet. It it took you around a small space in the interior. I, I would hesitate to take it onto the road. I don't know what would happen if it came up against a curb. But what it showed is that there, there are so many possibilities for small scale mobility, which was which was one of the interesting things. Send one immediately. Fiona Wilson talking to us Tom, from Tokyo. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Last weekend, world leaders and ministers descended on Reykjavik for the Arctic Circle Assembly, the largest international gathering on the Arctic. And one of the key themes topping the agenda was the importance of ensuring the political participation of indigenous communities for whom the Arctic is home. Monocle's Andrew Muller and the Foreign Desk team travelled to the Icelandic capital to meet some of the conference attendees, including Sara Olsvik, who's the international chair of the Inuit Circumpolar Council. Andrew began by asking Sarah, where she gets the sense that Indigenous people are being listened to on Arctic issues. Well, I think that what we wanted to put out there on the agenda of the Arctic Circle Assembly this year is to really tell how Indigenous peoples for those 50 years have led policymaking and have led the development in the Arctic through various platforms. And it all started well before 1973, but Mm -hmm. in 1973 was the first time that Indigenous peoples from across the Arctic actually met and from there declared our demand to be recognized as peoples, and also our demands to be recognized as the original inhabitants and custodians of the lands and waters and sea and ice that we reside on in the Arctic. Obviously, we reside around the whole Arctic as peoples. And our collaboration, starting from 1973, was really our way of joining forces, standing shoulder by shoulder for those 50 years from then on until now, achieving a long array of very important influence and direct implementation of our rights on the international arena, including in international law. Obviously, we have the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that was adopted by the General Assembly of the UN in 2007. But this didn't come out of nothing. It came out of our peoples and our leaders working and pushing and using the diplomatic skills that they also have and we have as peoples and organizations to be there with the states, inform the states, and one by one achieving steps by steps of implementation of our rights. But even after that half century of you know, relative progress, do you still see that there are big gaps between the imperatives of indigenous peoples in this part of the world and the imperatives of the elected governments in this yes. part of the world? Where are those gaps? So, for example, the UN Declaration recognises us as equal to all other peoples. It recognises our individual rights and our collective rights. So that the UN Declaration has very clear language on recognizing us as equal to all other peoples with the right of self-determination is not implemented most of the places in the Arctic. And we still get a strong pushback, not only from governments, but also from uh, research communities, from business communities in decision-making processes and development in general in the Arctic. Let's take, for example, the situation for the Sami people in Norway. Mm -hmm. Across SAPMI, we see that there's this notion of developing green transition in the name of what others will call of a greater good, but it's at the cost of the rights of the Sami people. And we worry very much because we are the first-hand peoples that experience climate change long before many, many others in the world. The Arctic climate has clearly been changing. And when our organization was established in 1977, the safeguarding of our environment, the incentive of safeguarding being that we will forever have access to those resources to live from them as peoples has been top of our agenda. We haven't reached that level of equity in the world, although it on paper is very clearly stated that we are equal to all other peoples. Are you sceptical then about the idea, and we, we have heard it a bit this week, and I'm sure you've heard it yourself, that there's some sort of means by which addressing climate change and economic development don't have to be mutually exclusive. We don't have to 
pick one or the other, we can have both. I mean, I know Indigenous peoples are not a monolithic opinion on any subject, but in broad terms, is there a sense that there might actually be economic opportunity for Indigenous peoples in advancing those technologies you were talking about? Of course, we need economic opportunities. Included in our rights is our right to development and to determine our own cultural and social and economic future. So the key here is the self-determination part. And our right of self-determination is directly affected by the pressure from the outside world to do both research and geoengineering projects and entering into the Arctic and do the decision-making on top of the heads of us Mm -hmm. instead of including us in it or letting us take the lead as we have done for millennia. And what we are standing in front of in terms of a global task is that when we then go to the UNFCCC COPs, when we negotiate biodiversity beyond national jurisdictions or even the plastics treaty that is being Mm -hmm. negotiated now, that indigenous peoples are there included in the decision-making because all of these decisions affect us directly. So we are up against huge mechanisms in the world, in worldviews, in ways of thinking, in power structures that are fully embedded into the world around us. And I think this is where indigenous peoples truly contribute to opening up ways of thinking that would contribute and benefit the whole world. In practical terms, though, and if we sort of frame this in terms of Greenland, and obviously the political party you led in Greenland is a pro-independence party. If, if Greenland had been for some decades now an independent sovereign state, what practical difference would that have made in terms of Greenland's contribution to, for example, discussions and plans and mechanisms on addressing climate change? Well, I think Greenland is an excellent example of how climate change is directly affecting our people. If you look at the surveys that are done on the people of Greenland's opinions on climate change Mm. and thoughts on climate change, you see a vast majority of people knowing and believing that climate change is human-made. And you also see that it is top of mind of so many. When we went to the Arctic Regional Gathering preparing for the COP28 a few weeks ago, we had with us a large number of knowledge holders from across Inuit Nunat, including four knowledge holders from across Greenland. Just to back up a bit, a knowledge holder is... That would be a hunter or a fisherman, or like we also brought a woman from South Greenland who works directly with the sheep farmers. So someone who is there in their everyday life in nature, experiencing the changes. And that knowledge, indigenous knowledge, we bring into the UNFCCC process. So that's one big achievement of indigenous peoples to have those platforms. And I think in Greenland, as a relatively young nation in a Westphalian sense, Mm. of course, we've been there for millennia and we are people. But Greenland as a nation that is building itself up also now on the international arena, this is full of paradoxes and complexities. And I think the idea of the world entering into treaties and agreements is a really, really important thing and good, but it hasn't learned to accommodate those peoples who are not considered the traditional, conventional Westphalian states. And that's a challenge to the world, because I truly believe that if we were all equally included, the end result would also be stronger. And that was Sarah Olsvig, who's the International Chair of the Inuit Circumpolar Council, speaking to Andrew Muller at the Arctic Circle Assembly. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, Contact us at UBS.com. Time to talk film with Karen Krasanovich joining me in the studio. Very good morning to you, Karen. Good morning. How is life in the Krasanovich world? It's it's very good. I saw a really good movie last night, so it always puts me in a good mood. What did you see? I saw um, All of Us Strangers, which is going to be the big breakout hit by Andrew Haig. So keep your eye... It's It's a weepy... It's very, it's very meaningful, and I mean that in a good way. It'll really make you think. Why is it so good? I mean, you said a, we- a meaningful weepy. It hasn't quite sold me, perhaps in the way okay. that Fiona Wilson's stool all right, got very- bit me. <laughs> I, I want one of those We stools. all want one of Fiona's stools. <laughs> great. Um, very quickly, it's the story of a, of a screenwriter who discovers that his 
His parents, who died at 12 in a car accident when he was 12, are still alive in some form as spirits or something, but they look real, in their family, in the family home. And he goes back to visit them. And it's a wish fulfillment. It's the things you wanted to tell your parents that you didn't. It's beautiful, actually. Sounds lovely. Right. Uh, that done. What else, if we're not into, uh, well, sort of like Ghost 2023, yeah. <laughs> what else has been going on? Let's, let's talk about Godzilla. Godzilla. Okay, you know, the, the, the uh, Tokyo Film Fest has been going forward and they're trying to make it a bigger, more international festival. They've started out with the... Uh, with the Vim vendors, and they're finishing with Godzilla minus one. I don't know how you feel about Godzilla, but I like him. And this is. He's never troubled me, so I'm quite happy. He says lovely things about you. He speaks I leave you as well. Oh, thank you. But well, he's minus one now. He's minus Someone sent one. him to the basement. <laughs> he's on the naughty step. Um, this is by filmmaker of VFX, written and directed. This is the first time I've ever seen that credit by Takashi uh, Yamazaki, who is primarily an anime director. Now, this is 70 years after the first film, and after World War II, this is set in, in a period film, reduced to zero, and Godzilla appears and plunges the country into a negative state. Now, you have to remember, Godzilla represents nature, and in almost every movie, he tries to show mankind that they shouldn't tamper with nature. And also, if you'll notice, in every movie, he gets bigger and bigger. Well, yes. How much have they tampered with Godzilla? Because a bear lot. in mind, we're going back several decades here when I was yeah. watching the cartoons, <laughs> and he had a limited number of recognisable spikes. It's true. They've gone, they've gone overboard on the spikes this time around, and he looks angrier than ever. Well, it's 2023, and he's very spiky. Really spiky. Yes, very, very spiky. But you can judge for yourself on December the 15th. It will come out in the UK, coming out earlier in Japan. And the running time is only two hours five. So that's not too bad. Okay. Is that a thing nowadays? Are we now, because we look, Scorsese is, has taken his time with three hours he plus with to. his latest one. And people are saying this is a, a deeply enjoyable ride because it's, you know, because taking your time is, is important for Scorsese. You no, know, I, I, I think there's a point to be made there that we spend so much time on our phones and screens and feeling harassed that it's nice to just turn everything off and sit and watch something for almost four hours. Okay. I haven't quite got to four hours yet. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the uh, the strikes in the United States. Okay. Where are we up to with okay. them? I got up early to check. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. <laughs> now, we know that they've been in negotiations all this week. In fact, uh, they've been six times to the table since October the 11th. And the fact that the major CEOs of the studios and streamers have been attending, not just their negotiation lawyers, is significant. Now, last night... Um, this is what SAG-AFTRA said. Today we passed a comprehensive counter across the table to CEOs, and we will continue talking tomorrow. So that means they're negotiating Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, which is really significant. Um, they reduced their demand from 11, 11% to 9% for the first-year increase in minimum rates, and that's getting closer to the studio's request for 7 So they're trying very slowly to meet in the middle on all sorts of things. Still hung up on uses of AI in digital digital replicas. This sounds good. This sounds like progress well, is being made. Yes, but the thing is, is that the studios are saying that if they don't reach a deal in 10 days, they'll have to delay more summer blockbusters and scrap a lot of the scripted TV season. Indeed. I mean, how much is this now beginning to trickle through in terms of the fresh programs and the fresh films that the likes of Netflix a can lot. offer? You know, a lot. I'd have to say probably, I don't know, 50% maybe. Um, okay, so the domestic box office is 7.5 down. It should be, it's 17% below what it should be, 25% below last year. But it could be $9 billion. Taylor Swift is not saving the cinema, so you can take that to your next party. There are a few but films Swift that are... beating Scorsese. Well, Scorsese selling more tickets. So, um, Aquaman's still going through, Wonka's still going through, The Color Purple, but Mission Impossible has been pushed, Deadpool 3, I know you're waiting for that one, has been pushed. So a lot, of things, a lot of things are being pushed, so the next 10 days are going to be really, really important. Um, will there be time when sort of people prioritize the, the long-term effects of these of these strikes are mm. going to be what? That that if you are an enormous movie maker, you will think, well, actually, I have to prioritise if, if, if we are going to have things cut because of the either the backlog or the, or the unwillingness for, for, for deals to be reached. Will there be a moment when the likes of Deadpool 3 sort of falls by the wayside because someone says we actually have to prioritise what we can do? Well, Deadpool 3 is, is a big moneymaker, so that one won't be shelved. It'll probably be things that were sort of, I don't know, maybe, maybe the next MCU 
would have been pushed possibly because they're forming. We've got the Marvels coming, which of course I worked on, which is coming up, uh, which is considered to be a medium uh, Marvel comic universe movie. So I think those will probably be be sidelined and, and other things. But strong franchises will will go through. Um, and also, oh, there's a growing restlessness with a list members. People really want to get to work, and a lot of people in the industry. Um, are worried about losing their homes. They are. Karen Krasanovich, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Now, it's Friday, which means it's time for Andrew Muller's rather marvellous assessment of what the last seven days have taught us. Here's what we learned. We learned this week of the hitherto convincingly suppressed appeal of a particular town in England's legendarily grim north, which is to say that we learned of the obdurate holidaying preferences of one German tourist, a certain Rainer Schmidt, who for the last 32 years has been taking his annual holiday in Hull. Hull, hell, you see what we've done there, and while we acknowledge that hell ain't a bad place to be might have been the more subtle and or fitting ACDC Hull illusion, it is a bit of a deep cut and would therefore have been less inviting in on the joke to the passing listener. And we, for one humorous weekly news review, would be interested to know what the general muttered agreement crew makes of this deeply pondered artistic decision. Yeah. Cannot tell you what a relief your endorsement is. We learned that Herr Schmidt had become entranced over the decades by, it says here in loftily impartial journal of record, the Hull Daily Mail, Hull's kind people and the beautiful countryside surrounding the settlement. We did also learn, however, that while Herr Schmidt proclaims himself fond of traditional English breakfasts, he is unimpressed by the local sausage, which he skips in favour of an extra bacon ration. It's just as well he doesn't bring his own sausage from his native Bavaria, perhaps in some sort of special portmanteau. Oh no. As that would obviously be a worst case scenario. Anyway, sticking with the subject of people subjecting themselves repeatedly to the same futile ordeal in the expectation of different results, and no, we're not talking about listeners to these monologues. From an outside point of view, these last few weeks probably look like total chaos. We learned that in a live-action paraphrasing by the US Republican Party of the most famous aphorism of Andy Warhol, everyone will be Speaker of the House for 15 minutes. The Speaker's races under our House Republican majority have been open, honest, transparent, and a true display of what democracy looks like in action. It's an interpretation. Speaking there is House Majority Whip Tom Emmer, and we learned that this would be about all the speaking he'd be doing, as his own tenure as Speaker-designate lasted from just after lunchtime on Tuesday to shortly before dinner. He was the... severalth? candidate to be put forward before the Republicans decided he might be too broadly sane for their purposes, whatever they even are, and finally settled on this guy. This time it's Mike Johnson of Louisiana, a former talk radio host, a lower ranking member of House Republican leadership, serving his fourth term. He's an attorney specializing in constitutional law voted to decertify the 2020 elections. So we learned that the new Speaker of the House of Representatives, and therefore the person second in line to the actual presidency in event of severe mishap, is someone who not only apparently believes the fantastic fictions that the 2020 election was stolen from former President Donald Trump, that the software in the voting machines had been furtively rewritten by the ghost of Hugo Chavez or whatever mad nonsense it was, but actively engaged in the attempt to overturn said election. This should all go absolutely fine. Nothing to worry about. Wouldn't have thought. All this is said, of course, with the due caveat that by the time this monologue airs, almost anything else might have happened, the name of Mike Johnson might already have been consigned to history, and the new Speaker of the House of Representatives, which, and we checked, does not technically have to be a member of the House of Representatives, could be you, if you're an American citizen in reasonably solid standing. 
And if you're not, don't worry, your number is bound to come up eventually. But we learned that one American citizen's number looks increasingly like it might actually be up. We learned that Donald Trump had heard enough of his ongoing civil fraud trial in New York, specifically at around the point that the judge stung him for 10 grand for violating a gag order. And we learned that Trump may have yet greater problems. We learned not only that his former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, had apparently grasped him up to a federal grand jury in return for immunity from prosecution, but that Trump's elite strike force legal team of happier times were verily queuing to usher him under the bus, as Jenna Ellis became the fourth of Trump's co-defendants on charges of trying to cook the 2020 election in Georgia to plead guilty. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. As do democracy and common sense enthusiasts the world over. But we learned from another member of Trump's elite strike force legal team who the real villain is. We learned, and honestly, you'd think this would have been bigger news, but such are these times, that Joe Biden, President of the United States, is in fact an undercover operative of the Revolutionary Guard Corps of the Islamic Republic of Iran. But let's face it, he's on Iran's side, and he's on, the, and he's on Hamas's side. He is not on our side. Plus, he's got a bunch of spies in his administration. This guy is working for Iran. Either that, or we learn that the green rooms of the TV networks on which Rudy Giuliani appears these days are extremely generously stocked. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And my thanks to Andrew for that. If you enjoyed it, well, this time next week, there'll be another episode of What We Learned. And that's all we have time for for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Emma Searle and Monica Lillis. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chungu with editing assistance from Christy O'Grady and Dominic Gozo. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time on Monday. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. <laughs>